Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. How's it going, Lance? It's going very well. How are you today, Tim? I'm doing well. And Lance, for this episode, we continue our coverage of the unsolved murder of Dean Webster from Rochester, Vermont. And this episode, we speak to Dean's sister, Sandy. Yeah, it was a really emotional interview with Sandy. You can tell that she is just still torn up about it. She gave some details about what it's done to her family. And that's when she started to to break a little bit because you can you can tell that something like this, uh, we talk about secondary victims all the time. This is a perfect example of that. Just down to like her family members not even knowing whether they could trust each other, which I think is really tragic. I think they're mending uh, fences and, and trying to move forward. But, you know, everyone's getting older and, and Dean's murder is still unsolved. And it's been unsolved since November of 2001. Right. And obviously it's a tragedy. Um, they're losing Dean. Uh, there has not been any justice. And then, as you mentioned, Lance, it's, it's caused rifts inside, even inside the family, which is you know, this secondary victim tragedy that we kind of discuss a lot. And she actually wrote us an email recently, Lance, and uh, I think we're, we're going to read it here in the intro because it, it is so emotional. And uh, and also, before we read this, I want to make sure that you listen to part one of our Dean Webster coverage. There's a lot of information in there, and it's a really unique opportunity that we're being given here by private investigator Lou Barry and the nonprofit Private Investigations for the Missing. So in episode one, we speak to Lou Barry, who is also in this episode, and he takes us through the first steps of his investigation into the unsolved murder of Dean Webster for Private Investigations for the Missing. Yeah, highly recommend people check that out, not only for uh, the awareness factor of Dean's murder, but to experience the process of private investigations for, for the missing from the beginning. And this is um, just another example of the template. Lou is gathering information, speaking to family members. We're acting as the media conduit um, for the time being. And honestly, the platform of podcasting is starting to become a little bit more important than a regular news broadcast that is distributed locally to that area. The the podcast can can reach anybody anywhere and will be there forever. And uh, I think that's something that uh, we're experiencing now with Erica Franelick and with uh, Dean Webster. And so make sure to follow the social pages for Private Investigations for the Missing. They're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And also there's a Facebook page called Who Killed Dean Webster? There's a link to that in the show notes. And if you have information about Dean's unsolved murder, please contact us at whokilleddean at gmail.com or through the Facebook Messenger. Also, tips can be submitted anonymously to the Vermont State Police through their website, or by texting VTIPS to 274637. So here's the email that Sandy wrote. She starts with, I don't know why I get emotional and forgetful every time someone wants to ask me questions about my brother, but I do. Doesn't matter whether it's been one day or 20 years, it still breaks my heart. He meant a lot to me because he was my brother and not just a nobody. We all grew up together and we all got along pretty well. Dean was like a father to me. He taught me how to shoot a gun, encouraged me to take hunter and safety courses, protected me on the school bus, helped me buy a car when I got my license, was willing to help me buy land when I was ready, helped me pay for my college books when I took classes. While my dad lived in Jericho, Dean would drive my brother and I there after school on Fridays to visit. 
And at the time, I would sit in the back seat and be slightly embarrassed because they'd be rocking out to the Beastie Boys, licensed to ill, singing as loud as possible. He drove a gold Pontiac, four-door standard, shot his biggest deer on the way to school one morning, and put that deer in the trunk. One side of the horn dragged on the pavement and ended up with a flat spot on it. I could always count on Dean, and if he said he'd be there to help, he would be there. He was always sweet, caring, and his heart overflowed with kindness. Dean had a solid approach to life. Sad that he isn't here today. Sad that he can't meet my kids. Sad that my kids will never get to see firsthand what a great person he was. The person or persons that did that to him had to be something evil. He, she, took a wonderful human off this earth. I just want justice served for Dean. And again, that was from Sandy, Dean Webster's sister, the guest on this episode. We are being joined now by Sandy Webster. Sandy, how are you? I'm good. How are you all today? We're doing really well, and we want to thank you for joining us here to talk about your brother, Dean Webster. We uh, had covered his unsolved homicide with Lou. Lou's here with us as well. Uh, we covered his unsolved homicide um, a, a few weeks ago, and his uh, that, was, that happened in November uh, of 2001, and Lou was able to make the connection with you. And, um, yeah, just want to thank you for coming on, and, and Lou, thank you for doing what you're doing. My pleasure. And thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Can we hear a little bit about Dean? What was it like growing up with Dean? He was always a great person. Um, kind of like um, he would do just about anything for actually any one of us if he could. Uh, you know, as a child, I mean, he he uh, he was always pleasant and very kind, a jokester so to speak. Um, sometimes you didn't get his jokes, but he always thought he was funny. So that's kind of <laughs> the main main thing that counted, you know. Um, and like I said, he, he's always done everything for any one of us that we ever needed. So He was a little older than you, right, right Sandy? Yeah, he was three years older. How how big was um how big was your family? Uh there were seven of us total, so wow. I'm the youngest. And he was above me. Okay, you were the youngest, and and he was a, a, a how how many years older was he? Did did he did you say three? Three. Okay. And uh, what was it like to grow up in the town of Rochester? Actually, we didn't grow up in the town of Rochester. We grew up in the town of Florence, Vermont. Oh, okay. Is that nearby? It's probably um, maybe twenty miles away. Is it a similar sized town? Actually, it's a lot smaller sized town. Um, the houses are spread out a lot further. The only thing that uh, that was actually there is truly a uh, church and a post office. Other than that, it was like the local towns that you had to really travel to. I mean, when we, we went to school, I mean, it would take us 45 minutes to an hour on a bus ride to get to school. What was it like growing up in a in a family of, you had six six brothers and sisters. What was that like? Because I had two sisters, so I can't imagine, you know, doubling up on that. Well, it wasn't too bad. I mean, usually it was like the brothers and sisters actually took care of the younger kids a lot of the time. 
And did you keep in touch with uh, your brother Dean after he moved out of the house and, um, you know, on a regular basis? Yeah, we'd speak like daily, if not, you know, once a week or whatever. And whenever I had a problem, I'd call him and he, you know, it would be somebody to talk to who wasn't judgmental or whatever. So, yeah, looking at the pictures of him online, it seems like he's he just looks like a really like decent guy to be around. He just looks like a fun guy to be around. He, I, I haven't seen a picture of him where he's not smiling. Was that was that pretty much the case? It was. He would always be smiling or happy for the most part. It has to be difficult talking about his death. What was it like when you first heard what happened and how long it had been since you had spoken to him before you heard about this? I was supposed to be, I think it was like two days before I was told. And one of my sisters called me to tell me that he fell off the roof. He actually fell off the roof? No, that's just what I guess they thought in the beginning is that he fell off his roof while working on his wow. house. So, yeah, that, that's wild. So when did you learn that that wasn't the case? It was, um, I, I don't remember. Actually, it was a little time after that, a couple days. So how did they get the information that he fell off the roof? Was it something that the police had told them, or was it something that a neighbor had thought and told them? Um, I think maybe it was somebody that, you know, had called one of my family members and said that. They just didn't know exactly what the story was, but that's just kind of what they heard or whatever. So I don't know how that got started, but Hmm. that's just what I was told. So then you find out that he was he was shot, and what was your reaction to that? Did you immediately have a have an idea of who might have done that, or well, that must have been shocking to you? No, I had no idea, but you kind of just think everybody, at least I did. I mean, I lost, I was like just very distrustful of others. Oh, that's that's uh, sad to hear. So that that was kind of a a change in uh, in your life afterwards? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, did you have any contact with the police? Um, they spoke with me every once in a while just to let me know what was going on or whatever, but really nothing ever panned out for any of it. And according to a couple of articles that uh that I've read, you were supposed to meet up with him on November 15th. Uh is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And he, and he obviously didn't show up. And uh, what, what was the um, reason for the meetup, just to hang out? Yeah, usually. I mean, he was working on his house all day, so he was going to um, my sister's house to take a shower. So we were going to meet there because he said he was headed over in that direction anyways because I was going to drive. Mm-hmm. But he went over and just to meet him at my sister's, mm-hmm. and he never showed up. And he'd been working on his house, you said. Was this a house that he was uh, renovating? He bought it and he was renovating it? Or is it something that he was kind of doing from, you know, from the ground up? He was building his house from the ground up. It's a piece of property that he bought. And then he wanted to put a house on it. And that's what he was working on. Uh, he was out of work at the time due to, due to his injury? Yeah, he was out of work. Right, right. And how, how did he get injured again? The way I understood, a chain fell on his arm. A chain? Yeah, he was in. Uh, he did pipe fitting and stuff like that. So, commercial pipe fitting, you're uh, way up in the air on ladders or whatever. And a guy above him dropped a chain, and it hit his arm. I'm not sure exactly. I mean, I, I'm not there. I 
couldn't tell you exactly how it went, but I mean, it was obviously enough to keep him out of work. So, yeah, that that's uh that that's terrible. But it does uh, impress me. Anyone who builds their house from the ground up like that, I'm um enormously impressed by that. Was he uh, good with his hands? He obviously was, right? I mean, he was uh, a hunter and a and a fisherman, right? And uh, and he was also a builder, apparently. He was very talented. Um, he used to build things in school, like clocks and um, just just about anything, shelves, uh, gun cabinets, and he could he could pretty much do a lot of things. And uh, in two thousand one, he was living alone and in, in in the house that he was building. So it was at a uh, a point where you know it was livable and and insulated and everything. Yeah, it was more of a shell, but he made it work mm-hmm. and. And up until the time that, like, the spring actually stopped working, he had to have a well drilled. And so that's why he was taking showers at other people's houses or whatever, because he still wanted to live here and still build it. And Lou, you mentioned that uh, he got injured and uh, wasn't working at the time of his death. Did you identify that as a clue somehow? Uh, No, just... um explain the fact that why he wasn't working, you know, he he was out on a workman's comp claim, so he was, you know, taking advantage of that opportunity to work on his house. I mean, otherwise, you know, if he'd been working, he obviously wouldn't have been there at that hour of the day during a week. It it feels like, to me, he's a, you know, a, a, a guy you can get along with, he's talented, he's uh, if if your car breaks down or if you have a problem with your car, he, he would probably be a guy that you would call to maybe take a look at it or you know, something something breaks, or like you said, he built cabinets and built shelving. Like, did he have an enemy? I feel like he was, all of these attributes don't really line up for anybody uh, to dislike this guy. I've never felt like he's ever had an enemy, ever, even growing up. He was always friendly to people. People were always friendly to him. I'm sure maybe during work, maybe he could have been an ass, or sorry, <laughs> could have been a little strong-headed. Okay. I mean... But that's, you know, the type of work that you do. I mean, when things aren't level, you say something or, you know, just perfect because it has to be perfect for it to work and keep working. Was he, uh, did you know him to be hanging out with any uh, people who might seem a little sketchy? Um, You know, I think everybody hangs out with somebody who's a little sketchier than another person. I mean, so it's nothing that's uncommon because, I mean, we live in such small towns here that, you kind of know those people. It's not like you hang out with them. You know them, or you know them by association mm-hmm. or whatnot. So do you do you think it could be a hunting accident? I mean, I, I know he was a, a pretty avid hunter. Um, not by the sounds of it, no. A mistaken identity or something like that? I would, it, would, it doesn't seem to make sense why he would have been targeted. I don't know. Sometimes I think mistaken identity, it's kind of hard to think because i've always been preoccupied with you know how he died or who did it or whatever what what have the um police communicated with you um i mean now and then back then did you uh go in for any official questioning about this i would say no official questioning they've asked me questions before more than willing to answer whatever they have because i mean whatever but i don't think it's official i mean when i see say official don't they just kind of like set you down and talk to you completely or ask you like hundreds of questions or things like that that's what i think is official so probably unofficial how about the rest of your family i don't think that there's been really anybody who's had an official 
interaction with them. I mean, more recently than there was a long time ago. I think they thoroughly questioned, like, my sisters and brothers at one point. They're asking you questions about the investigation, um, like things like, did did they did you see anybody that you, you know was questionable during that time period, or was your brother ever acting um, like he was afraid of something? Questions like that, or were they were they more um, sort of general? I think a lot of them are more general questions, like if they have a question, or if you know you say you hear something, then they have questions. I mean, because there's stories going around all over, it doesn't mean that they're true, but obviously people like to. Uh, talk but then again once you go back to the source of it it seems to be a lot of the same people oh really mm-hmm. so have some have some people or uh, any individual stood out as a little more shady than the rest of the community um i would say once in a while they i mean a long time ago they did but then if I thought people were shady, it seemed like I was thinking everybody was shady. So it kind of got to the point where I had to stop because I'm not the investigator. And it's just, you know, I can make anybody, you know, kind of guilty in a way, I think, than, than what actually is. Just because I'm his sister. Yeah, of course. And I can't imagine what it must be like even going to the grocery store and looking around and, and wondering if this is the person who did this, it, you know, especially right after it happened and right after you found out. I and mean, that must have been that must have been a, a certain kind of torment for you. And that's terrible. Yeah, it was. I, ha- I had a whole lot of bitterness and anger toward everybody. So in a case like this, where um, given the geographic location, um, as opposed to, you know, being in a city or somewhere where there's a, a lot of random crime, um, the chances of, of him not knowing his assailant are probably pretty slim. So whoever did it is probably known to the people up there. Um, not not to necessarily know that he did it, but know, they know the person who did it. Um, so that would make it even more, um, you know, likely that, you don't know who you're talking to. You know, you know whether the person's involved or not. Does that make sense? No, that makes total sense. And actually, I'm, I was going to ask if uh, if you think that the person, actually both of you, uh, I don't know, you might have different opinions on this. Do you think that the person who did this is still living in the area? Are they from the area? Are they? Is that sort of definite in your heads? In my mind, I feel like somebody is closer than I would like to believe, um, living somewhere similar i mean because he did have two big dogs and it's not like they were really vicious dogs but you had to know them to approach them or approach his property or him for that matter i mean he had a rottweiler Mm -hmm. and a boxer and they would make some noise i mean if somebody that they didn't know would actually you know come onto the property I, i i almost think that yes maybe it is somebody who's closer than i think Right, because you're saying the dogs might have acted a little different or things might have gone down a little differently, maybe? Maybe. I mean, I'm not, you know, 100% sure, but it wasn't like the dogs were, the, you know, the friendliest and maybe they weren't the meanest, but you kind of have to know them. I mean, you're not going to approach a, a Rottweiler on somebody's property, I don't think. No, no, it's a good opinion. It It really does stand to reason that if you've... Um, if you didn't know this person and you didn't know the property and you just happened upon it, and then you you see either a Rottweiler or he has a um, what was it a, a bulldog a, bo- a boxer 
a boxer sorry so a rottweiler and a boxer i mean yeah i'm i you're probably not approaching that person a dead end street so it's not like it's you know someplace that you're going to go normally yeah you would just happen by there so that's pretty much your opinion as well lou well yeah yeah i hate to jump to the conclusions it, it, i think it's way too early an investigation for that but Certainly the indication to me at this point would be most likely it's someone that um, uh, undoubtedly knew the area and most likely knew him. Um, now, whether they're you know, still in the area or not, I, I wouldn't even begin to speculate at this point because I don't, I don't know the players at all. But um, yeah. certainly that's the indication. Now, it, you know, you hate to, hate to focus on one avenue of thinking and, and eliminate others just by virtue of the fact that you don't think it didn't happen, you try to keep an open mind. But um, certainly looking at the odds, um, I, you know, I know where it is, and I'm not sure I could find a place. <laughs> mm-hmm. So right. the fact that someone who just happened to stumble on it, happened to be armed with a firearm, and for no reason, you know, shoot somebody is pretty slim. Um, again, it's not like it's a city where you, you could have a random act of violence. Maybe somebody was going to to a street robbery or something like that. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think it's pretty I think it's pretty evident that someone is is at minimum familiar with that area and most likely also acquainted at least somewhat acquainted with with um Dean. Right. And and Lou, you brought this case to us through private investigations for the missing and while it's not a missing persons case, it's still an unsolved cold case. Uh, at what point in your investigation did you reach out to Sandy, and what what was that like? Um, you know, making that that connection. Well, it, it actually came to my attention in kind of an unusual way. There's a, a young lady who was um, a journalist who uh, somehow I don't know if it was for an article or what had been researching this case for quite some time, and they did a, a fairly good job. Um, a very good job actually gathering a lot of <clears throat> information and kind of come to a dead end and decided it was time for, you know, someone with maybe some investigative experience to look at it. And I, I don't know how she found me, but somehow she did and contacted me and asked me if I'd take a look at it. Um, and once I cleared it with, uh, you know, PI for the missing that they were interested in looking at the case, um, I, I reached out to Sandy um, as the, the family member and the contact explained, you know, who we were, what we were doing, and why we were doing it. And um, obviously, we want the family on board. We're not going to do anything without the family's okay. So, um, But it's an interesting case, for sure. And I think it's, on its face, at least, very, very solvable case. Yeah. And, Sandy, what was it like when Lou reached out to you, and how long it had been since you worked with any investigator on this? Well, it was actually um, the lady he's referring to. She contacted me a couple of years ago, um, actually. But she was working on some other thing at the time. And then, I don't know, a few months after that, she just kind of linked somebody that lived within the area here that she was actually looking at. And then my brother's case came up at the same time. So then she kind of switched gears. And it was a little tough for me in the beginning because I didn't know whether to trust this person or not because I didn't know the person. And she contacted me through Facebook, like what a lot of people do. 
So it took me a while to get to, you know, talk to her. I met her. You know, she didn't seem like a really bad person. But when I hear journalists, I'm like, well, what are they in? You know, what are they doing? Um, Why are they interested in the case? Because it's unsolved. And so then she finally, you know, she, she said that she was really, you know, interested in trying to get it solved, which was great. Um, and then when I finally spoke to Lou, I mean, I was like, I, I don't feel like I have really anything to lose because I hope, pray that somebody's found. Yeah. How, how much um, How much physical evidence do you know um, came from the crime scene? I guess uh, this is more for, for you, Sandy. Did they, the police back back in the day, uh, share anything with you uh, that they seized from the, from the crime scene? Uh, no. No, I don't feel like a lot has been shared, um, mm-hmm. but, but kind of understandable. I yeah. mean, they were working on it. They don't want things to get out. That shouldn't be out. Right, and they, I'm sure they want to, the, to prosecute it. As Lou said, it does kind of sound solvable um, with certain aspects of it. And this is still an active case with them. This is not, um, even though it's an old case, I, I wouldn't necessarily call it a cold case because they are still um, actively investigating it. It's still, um, uh, they're still working on it. So they, they are um, very conscientious of, of what they what is released and what isn't um, justifiably because they have to think prosecution. That's their goal, obviously. So, um, you know, they, that's why they're very... Uh, tight-lipped about you know what they have for evidence what they don't have for evidence which is again understandable yeah that's really interesting that you said it's an active case so it's not necessarily a cold case i guess i never made that distinction yeah a cold case indicates it's just sitting there nobody's really doing anything with it i think Uh um and that's why a lot of times instead of instead of referring to them as cold cases even though that's a popular term in reality what they are is unresolved cases and, and they're a little bit different there um and this is more of an unresolved case than a cold case, I think. I, I don't think they've ever really put this on the shelf and said, you know, we're not going to touch it anymore. I mean, there, there may be time when they're, they have other things that take priority, obviously, uh, something that's more active. But, um, you know, it's, this case has never been put to bed, so to speak. And, Lou, have you been in touch with uh, the current uh, investigating officers? I have had conversation with them, yes. Okay, great. Um, I imagine it's a one-way street. <laughs> These things usually are, um, and yeah, you know. But that's okay because um, number one, I, as I think I said last time, I, I want to look at it with a fresh eye, anyways. Um, and it's easy if someone else tells you something; it's easy to take their word for it and not look at it yourself. So I'd rather almost not know anything at this point um, and try and. and find things myself so in that sense it's not a bad thing i don't think um and the other thing is you know the goal in this case unlike some like for instance the brianna maitland case where our goal was to find out what happened to her number one that was priority in this case we know what happened to dean the priority is getting whoever did it prosecuted you know i can't i'm, I'm not a law enforcement agency i don't prosecute cases they do so in effect, anything I'm doing is I can't really do anything with any anyways except turn over to them. You know, in that sense, 
it doesn't make sense in a lot of a lot of way for them to be revealing stuff that they know. I, I guess I don't know if I'm making myself clear or not on that, but no, it makes sense. Yeah, they obviously want to prosecute. Yeah, I mean that's the goal of prosecution. So they can't risk anything that could jeopardize a prosecution. That would be self defeating in, in what we're trying to accomplish here. So where do you start when you contact someone like Sandy, who's a sister, and you begin your process? Uh, do you go back to, I guess, like the drawing board, for lack of a better word? Do you go back to the beginning? Do you, say, just start at the beginning and you try to gather, um, you know, maybe some, some information that, that fell through the cracks throughout the years? Yeah, that's certainly a big part of it. I mean, I try and research as much as possible, uh, news articles, uh, media reports, um, talking to, you know, the people that were involved initially, um, peripheral witnesses and, and family members. Um, you know, the, you have to learn as much about the case uh, as you can, and, and I think that's kind of at the stage that I'm at right now, um, talking to family members, um, and at the same time, um, getting the word out, the publicity out, and that's exactly what you know we're doing with the podcast, because um, that generates talk and that generates potential leads. You know, certainly if something came in now, I, I would certainly jump on it. But you know, you kind of go in steps, and the first step is to learn all you, all you can. Talk to as many people as you can and see what develops from there. And hope you get lucky. Okay. So uh, is that still the stage you're in? Exactly, yeah. I mean, this is really, like I said, the beginning stages. Um, I've talked to Sandy. I've talked to another sister. I want to talk to a couple other um, family members. Um, just, again, for background information. And in the meantime, I'm compiling a list of other people, either witnesses or potential suspects that I eventually want to take a look at or talk to. Um, so, right. you know, a lot of this stuff involves planning and preparation, I guess. It's, and it's hard, obviously, with the the COVID situation. Everything has to be done via computer and telephone. You can't jump in a car and go knocking on doors, which um, you might otherwise is more effective, you know. So, Sandy, it must be difficult to talk about, but uh, can you speak a little bit about the toll that this took on your family? Um, well, my parents were divorced, so we'd get together for Christmases, and our whole family would come together and have dinner somewhere. And then kind of after that happened, everybody kind of split and kind of did their own thing. So kind of broke us up. And I don't know if it was because nobody trusted anybody. It was kind of hard to say. Mm -hmm. I mean, we still talk to each other, most of the family does, for the most part, but it's like here or there, or every once in a great while, you know, so. I talked to your dad, and it seemed to have a real, real impact on him. Uh, he's, he's what, in his 80s now? Yeah, he's 80. And it, yep. it seems to be really a focus of his at this point. Well, what would this mean to you and your family, if uh, if it were to be resolved? I mean... <laughs> It would be, it would be great because it would serve justice for Dean, basically. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, just you know, I don't know if it would really change anything knowing who did it or whatever, but you know, just the fact of somebody being out there, you know, who committed this crime, which was 
really awful, in my personal opinion, because he was a great person, you know. And I know people have always told, told me, you know, bad things happen to good people all the time. I think it's just the same because you don't really know until mm-hmm. you're put in that situation, you know. Because mm-hmm. nobody ever knows how you feel. I mean, I know how I feel, but everybody else can kind of like shrug it off and think that it's nothing. But if it was their brother or, you know, family member, I think they would have a different perspective on it. Even if it was like a person who did it, you know, if one of their family members were taken away in the same, you know, way, I think they would kind of feel how we feel. Yeah, absolutely. And we can hear it in your voice. And it's something that uh, we try to emphasize a lot more. And when we started doing this, we didn't really fully grasp the secondary victim effect. And whoever did this to your brother has no idea that, or maybe they do, and that's even worse. But the effect that it has on the family, and like it really struck a chord with me when you said that your family doesn't, maybe maybe there was some distrust amongst the family. Like that that's really uh, tragic to hear that a, that that a family would start to distrust each other because something like this happened. And you know you've probably repaired some of that trust because, but but initially, like you're looking at everybody, and it's it. I don't think the people who do these crimes have fully grasped the whole of, I guess, humanity. And I, I think, you know, whatever whatever we can do to try to help that is really what we're here for. And, you know, again, we appreciate you coming on and talking about it, even though it's obviously very painful. And <laughs> Yeah. Okay, Sandy? Yeah, I'm good. Okay. Has there been any other crime in the area that, that has happened, um, maybe either of you might know about that you look at and you say that's kind of similar, that maybe can point to somebody, or has it been pretty quiet there? It's pretty quiet for the most part. I mean, there's, had, I mean, there's shootings, but they happen here and there. I mean, Randolph is a close area that's had one, but I don't ever really look at anything too similar. The crime rate, the... Um, <clears throat> Violent crime is about half the U.S. average, uh, and property crime is almost at the U.S. average. So what you're saying is it's not that common. Right. It's a, it's a low, relatively low crime rate. On a scale yeah. of 1 to 100, it's a 10. Okay. And we don't know of any uh, sort of similar crimes uh, done with the maybe same weapon or similar caliber or whatever um, in the area or anything like that? I uh, I, not that I'm aware of this, no. Well, I, I just want to put it out there. I, I don't know if the person who did this, I don't know if the person who did this um, is listening, but we we do make an effort to uh, to uh, to target the areas that these crimes have been committed in, and and hopefully someone who knows something or someone who did this, uh, hopefully the person is listening. And I don't know how anyone could hear hear what's in your your voice, Sandy, and not not look at themselves and just be like, I'm a disgusting person. I need to do something about this. And hopefully that person can, can hear that. And, you know, you still have time. If you're listening to this, you still have time to, to fix this and, and, you know, at least try to do something right. And along those lines, not just the person who committed the crime, to me, chances are someone else knows something. Someone who, who, who isn't facing necessarily any criminal charges knows something. They're the ones that should really feel guilty and not, about not coming forward. Absolutely. 
And if anyone has any information, they can contact the Vermont State Police. Lou, is this something that you would recommend people with a tip uh, also um, submitted through investigations for the missing? You know, there's a number of ways they can submit it. They can send it um, certainly um, to the state police tip line. Uh, there's a cell number I can give you for the state police investigator, Sergeant um, uh, Kinney. Um, okay. There's, uh, you know, they could they could email Crawlspace. <laughs> they could email PIs for the missing. Um, you know, there's there's Facebook pages they could send a message to, um, and it, it really doesn't matter how the info comes in. The, the key is getting the info in there. So we'll put we'll put everything in the show notes so it can be real easy uh, access for anybody who has information, whether it's a link or a phone number. Uh, basically, what you're saying, Lou, is if you know something, just say it to, say it somewhere. We'll we'll find it. Tell somebody. Yeah, and if they <laughs> right. if they don't want to talk to the state police, then call us. If they don't want to call us, call state police. Call you. Uh, you know, call um, PI for the missing, or text them, or send them an email, or whatever. The key is to to get the information to somebody that can do something with it. Yeah, and bring closure to the family here. Absolutely, as as much as closure as possible, and. I I really uh, I, I I'm really appreciative. I, I think we're all really appreciative of you joining us, Sandy, and um, and telling us a little bit about Dean and and as much as you know about the case. Um, and you said that he used to uh, no no pressure, but he said that he used to have like really um, jokes, really really uh, unfunny jokes that he thought were funny. Does any of them stand out? I do remember something that he used to say all the time to me, <laughs> and he used to always tell me, "A piece at a time won't cost you a dime." Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.